Hi, everybody. Welcome to What Happens Next. This is Larry Bernstein. We're going to be doing a variety of discussions on the pandemic today. Our first speaker is Michael Robinette. He is an executive director of IHS Market Automated Advisory Service. Michael, can you tell us a little bit how this pandemic will affect the auto industry? Absolutely. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, certainly, as, uh, as the situation was approaching the, the uh, epidemic, the pandemic, uh, profitability was off for vehicle manufacturers and suppliers and dealers. They were under significant pressure with trade and regulations. And certainly, uh, R&D was taking a new focus towards electrification and autonomous, uh, autonomous driving as well as connectivity. So a lot of pressures. And the consumer was under more and more pressure from incentives and, and, and such. Then we've got certainly the pandemic and the, the market is essentially in a, uh, in a free state uh, where, where virtually sales have declined uh, 75 to 80%. It probably will for the next while. So what emerges on the other side? And this, really, this is really critical. Uh, let's take a look at the consumer. Number one, um, on the demand side, fleet demand is essentially cratered. So rental, corporate fleets, government fleets, they're, they're not going to look to replenish any of their volume uh, for at least a number of quarters, probably into the middle of next year at the earliest. With the reduction in the wealth effect, uh, we've gone from 29,000 down to the 20s. The luxury market is definitely going to be under significant pressure, and that's what's really driven the market over the last number of years. And then we're also going to see with higher unemployment and as some of those markets slowly come back, uh, we're going to have a number of years of slower demand where the used car market and repairing uh, vehicles as well as new ways of delivering vehicles are going to be in focus going forward. So that's going to be a lot of pressure on traditional dealers, especially given their high fixed costs. And as I was mentioning earlier, we're going to see an acceleration to new formats, new retail formats, whether it be uh, Internet purchasing or uh, reducing fixed costs uh, with the storefronts and such. So a number of issues there. As we look into the supply chain, I think what's really going to be interesting is, is the fact that there is going to be some OEM consolidation, the vehicle manufacturers. Uh, there's too many. Uh, they're not going to be able to afford. And the operative word right now in the industry is cash burn. There's a couple of vehicle manufacturers that are burning cash at alarming rates that really can't be sustained uh, over a couple of months. So we're going to see some, some definite restructuring. And that's also going to find its way over into the supply base. So the, the parts suppliers, there's going to be significant consolidation. Look for parts suppliers to look to vertically integrate. And those that have strong balance sheets are, are definitely going to look to, uh, you know, bolstering some of their capability, whether through vertical integration or looking at, at new sectors uh, within the automotive chain. So what are some of the major shifts that we see going forward? Well, certainly the dealers are going to be under pressure. You see the consumer and, and demand is definitely going to shift over the next couple of years. And we're going to see some new alternative business models in terms of delivering vehicles, partnerships, joint ventures, and an increased focus, at least for the next couple of years, on the used car market. So there, there is a lot going on, on in automotive, and certainly uh, we'll, we'll be under considerable pressure for, for some time. Uh, Michael, th those are some easy areas. Michael, what do you think about the rental car companies? Do you think they go bust? I think you're definitely going to see some consolidation there and, and don't look for them to really replenish their fleets until the early or middle part of next year until travel really starts to come back. And you mentioned that the auto part companies are going to have to consolidate. Um, but 
they're highly dependent on it with a lot of fixed costs. Do you think they will survive or will, they too will have to reorganize? The larger, uh, what we call tier ones, or the, the larger parts of players, they're going to do okay. They've been uh, sort of getting ready for this and their balance sheets are pretty strong. We worry about the, the deeper supply chain. The tier two, the mom and pop shops, some of the family owned companies that probably uh, after the GM strike of last quarter are going to have uh, extreme difficulty surviving this. So the banks have them on their radar screen. And do you, do you even think some of the majors like General Motors, will they? have to go bankrupt as well? I mean, the stock has already fallen by half. Is that sufficient? Or actually, even more than a half, I think, it's down. Yeah, I think I think GM is going to be fine. We worry more about uh, those vehicle manufacturers that are exposed mainly to North America and Europe, and that would be FCA and Ford, so uh, Fiat Chrysler. Uh, then also, you've got situations where there's some a couple of Japanese manufacturers like Nissan that were entering this, uh, this pandemic uh, in, in not the best shape. Okay. Michael, thank you very much. Our next speaker is Ed Glazer. Ed is a Harvard economics professor. He spoke to our group at Book Club before when he gave us in draft form his book, Triumph of the City. Ed, what are your thoughts on the pandemic and urbanization? Uh, I think the COVID-19 pandemic has delivered an unprecedented but not totally unexpected body blow to our urban world. Urban density does many wonderful things. It facilitates trade. It allows face-to-face collaborations that have powered humanity's greatest breakthroughs since Socrates and Plato bickered on an Athenian street corner. But there are also demons that come with density. Traffic congestion, high housing costs, urban crime. And the greatest of these demons has always been contagious disease. If two people are close enough to give each other an idea face-to-face, they are also close enough to exchange a virus, as we have become painfully aware. The glory of classical Athens itself was dimmed considerably by the plague that killed Pericles and helped lead to the city-state's defeat in the Peloponnesian War. A millennium later, the outbreak of a terrible plague in Constantinople, probably the first mass instance of black death, stopped the Emperor Justinian in his attempt to rebuild the Roman world. Until the past century, death from contagious disease was a constant threat in every large city. A boy born in New York in 1900, uh, just like a boy born in Shakespeare's London, could expect to live seven, six fewer years than a boy born in the countryside. But in those poorer times, uh, the promises of urban prosperity drew many people to cities despite the fear of plague. The past century of urban health from 1920 to 2020, only occurred because of massive investments in water pipes, aqueducts, and sewers, and some restrictions on individual freedom. Managing cities always needs infrastructure, incentives, and institutions. As a child growing up in New York City, I was reared on a tale of engineering triumphalism that once the city was filthy and then the great engineers built the Croton Aqueduct and the clean water brought in and the city was saved. But that story is only partially true. New York continued to have cholera epidemics for 25 years after the aqueduct was opened. My great-great-great-grandfather died in the epidemic of 1849. The water was there, but poorer New Yorkers weren't willing to pay for connections to the system. We see the same last-mile problem in urban Africa today, and water is important not just because of waterborne diseases, but if people don't have water, they don't wash their hands. My own work on water pipes in Zambia shows that respiratory illnesses like COVID also increase when the water pipes break. New York only became healthier after the Board of Health was formed in 1866, and the city started to fine tenement owners uh, who didn't connect to the aqueducts and the sewers. That process of investment and incentives was repeated throughout the wealthy world. America's cities and towns were spending as much on water at the start of the 20th century as the federal government was spending on everything except for the post office and the army. Those investments largely stopped the waterborne pandemics but left space for the droplet-carried pandemics like the influenza pandemic of 1919 and COVID-19. 
I suspect that if we're going to stop the pandemics of the future, uh, that we will also have to spend vast sums. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's never unreasonable to spend billions to reduce the likelihood of events that cost trillions of dollars and tens of thousands of lives. It is possible to imagine a world that is less urban and less connected. We are experiencing that through social distancing right now. And some of you are probably managing to be somewhat productive despite the physical isolation. Yet for great swaths of the economy, I cannot imagine an economic future without face-to-face proximity. Over the past 150 years, our economy has hurtled first from farms to factories, and then American workers have left manufacturing and moved into services. Our farms and factories still make amazing amounts of output, but they're highly mechanized, and that seems unlikely to change. The past, present, and future of low-skill employment, at least before COVID-19, was in urban services. A machine may be able to make you a latte, but it can't give you the same warm glow as talking to a friendly barista. 32 million Americans, one-fifth of our labor force, works in hospitality, leisure, and retail trade. These are deeply face-to-face activities that have been devastated by COVID-19. Together with some colleagues from Harvard Business School, uh, we put together a survey of the businesses in Alignable's business network, which is skewed towards retail. In our sample, 43% of businesses have already temporarily closed due to COVID-19. 51% of the firms in the Mid-Atlantic Census Division uh, have been closed, uh, and their employment was down by 43%. Uh, This retail Armageddon suggests that last Friday's job numbers are only going to get worse. Uh, 48% of American workers labor in smaller firms with fewer than 500 workers. And if our sample is at all representative, then those firms are running out of cash very quickly. Among those firms with more than $10,000 in monthly expenses, the typical firm has only about two weeks' worth of their expenses in cash on hand. The good news is the firms were optimistic about being able to reopen, at least with the subsidized CARES Act loans, although one does always worry about the over-optimism about entrepreneurs. Um, you shouldn't think of the CARES Act as stimulus. It's more like insurance against a terrible shock and attempt to stop our business network from completely dissolving during this short-term shutdown. Let's hope that it works and we can reopen. In developing world cities, containment is also going on, but the economic consequences may be far deadlier. America can weather this storm without mass starvation, but that may not be true in African cities. More people died from starvation during the plague of Athens than from the disease. When we think about shutting down developing world cities like Kampala and Kolkata, we're not trading off dollars versus lives, but lives versus lives. There's a lot of uncertainty about the true mortality rates from coronavirus, but I'm pretty sure about the true mortality rates from starvation. But when it's all done, we need to think about what set of investments, monitoring, ventilators, stockpiles, restrictions we're going to need to make. We need to take the threat of future pandemic seriously and invest in science. Our cities are too important to let contagion once again stalk their streets. And that's it. That was awesome. Um, Ed, one last question before you go. Um, We've been heading for greater and greater density, greater and greater urbanization globally. Um, Is that over? Or is this just a temporary blip? I think it's all a question of whether or not this becomes a once-every-three-year event or a once-every-100-year you know, event. Uh, and that's going to be a question, I think, fundamentally of, of how seriously we take this going forward. We, we clearly you know, treated this thing lackadaisically in the months and years beforehand. Uh, I think it is plausible that with billions of dollars of investment in uh, the right form of, of equipment, we will be able to stave this off uh, in the future and we'll be able to go on more or less as, as usual. But uh, I can't say that for sure. And certainly if, if pandemic becomes a regular part of urban, uh, urban life, then cities are going to look a lot less appealing in the years and decades ahead. Ed, thank you so much. Thank Our you, next speaker is, You're welcome. Be well. Our next speaker is Desmond Lockman. Uh, Desmond uh, was a former emerging market chief economist at Sound Brothers, where we worked together. Uh, he's now at AEI. Go ahead, Desmond. Uh, sure thing, Larry. Uh, what I would 
just want to talk about is the headwinds that you might get from abroad affecting the recovery in the United States. You know, and I think that that's kind of important, you know, because you could have something playing out in reverse. In 2008, we had Lehman crisis in the United States cause problems abroad. I think this time around, we're going to get the reverse. So the three big problems that I see uh, coming from abroad, you know, which can very much slow the United States recovery, are firstly the problems in the Eurozone area. You could get another round of the Eurozone debt crisis. The second thing I'd say is we could get China slowing down, you know, China slowing down a lot, like the way in which Japan did. Uh, that'll be really very important, considering that this is the second largest economy on earth. And then the third is it's likely we're going to get a whole wave of emerging market uh, debt defaults. You know, and that's important because emerging markets now are something like half the global economy. So if I just say a word about each of those, uh, you know, the place uh, on the Eurozone, you know, what you're seeing right now is you're seeing Italy, Spain and France. They all being hit very much harder than the United States. Uh, by the coronavirus, partly because in addition to their manufacturing base being shut down, they've got tourist sectors that are very unlikely to recover very quickly. Uh, so these, in the case of Italy, that's something like 7% of the Italian economy. So we're talking about you know, another major shock to that economy. The second point I'd make on Europe is that being stuck in the Euro straitjacket there's not a whole lot they can do to jumpstart their economy. So there are a whole lot of constraints, for instance, on their taking fiscal measures. So what we see is when the United States has taken something like 10% of GDP in measures to get the U.S. economy moving to limit the effect of coronavirus, uh, Italy, Spain, and France, they've taken something like 1.5% of GDP. So it's difficult to see how they're going to recover very quickly from this, and that can cause problems, particularly for Italy, which has got a huge amount of public debt. Their public debt to GDP ratio will go to 150%. It's got a weak banking sector. They're going to have to be propped up big time by uh, the ECB, by Europe. Uh, but, you know, the problem with Italy is it's unlike Greece, it's 10 times the size of Greece. You've got a problem that it's too big to fail, but it's also perhaps too big to bail. So just a word on China. Uh, China, before it went into coronavirus, it had problems in that it had a credit bubble, the likes of which we haven't seen, excess capacity in industry all over the place, too many houses, too much real estate. So what this is doing is it's going to trigger a whole lot of defaults. You're going to get the banks clogged up again with uh, bad loans. It's not going to be a collapse like you'd see in another emerging market, but it's going to be like Japan was in uh, 2000, you know, after their boom, uh, you just had all of these zombie companies and, uh, you know, too much credit. So you're going to see China growing very slowly. That's important. The second largest economy in the world, biggest uh, engine of growth for many years, big deal on commodity prices, you know, that biggest consumer of commodities, this is really going to hit the emerging markets uh, pretty hard. So just a last word on the emerging markets. Uh, what you've got is you've got here, you've got, they're faced with really a perfect storm. They've got a commodity uh, price bust. 
there's now a record pace of capital repatriation. All that money that went into emerging markets is now coming out. It came out at something like $100 billion in a single month. Uh, so that puts a huge amount of pressure on uh, their currencies. They've also got weak demand coming from the advanced countries. So the prop one of the problems in the emerging markets is that the corporate sector have borrowed far too much. They've borrowed something like $15 trillion. $3 trillion of that is in dollar-denominated debt. And what you're seeing right now is you're seeing their currencies pretty much in free fall. So, you know, if you look at, for instance, like the Brazilian real, the Turkish lira, the uh, South African rand, all of those currencies have depreciated already by something like 25%, which makes it difficult for them to repay the debt. So, in short... Uh, I see uh, likely we get real problems in those economies with weak fundamentals. Uh, you know, you could be seeing defaults. You know, certainly see a wave of defaults in Turkey. Uh, but I wouldn't put, uh, wouldn't be surprised to see problems. You know, many Latin American countries, including uh, uh, Brazil. You know, so all of this really makes it a very difficult international environment for the U.S. economy to recover. Oh, that was the bull case. Yeah, that was the uh, bull case. <laughs> now, you, um, can, I, can I have a minute yeah, on what I really think? You have one minute. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Do you think if, um, if the world reignites its economy in two to three months, is that not enough time for the emerging markets? No, the damage is already... The damage is already done is that, you know, you've got the collapse in the United States. What it's already done is it's provoked a collapse in Europe. You know, this coronavirus thing's occurring there. So you've got to ask how, you know, for instance, if you look at Europe, how did they get their economies going? You know, that's going to be the same problem you had in 2010, 2012. They stuck in the euro, you know, so a country like Italy can't devalue its currency. It doesn't have its own monetary policy. And the Europeans tell them that they've got to somehow keep their budget in check. You know, so they stuck, you know, that it's deep in a recession. You need to get external stimulus, and they're not going to have it. Desmond, thank you. Our next speaker okay. is Max Roser. Uh, Max is the founder and editor of Our World in Data. Go ahead, Max. Thank you very much. Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Max calling from Oxford, where I'm a researcher here at the university. I wanted to speak about our world in data that you just mentioned, and also in particular on the work that we're doing in the, on the pandemic. Our world in data is an, is an open access scientific publication that we built here at the uni. It's linked in, in the description for the call. And the mission of our world in data is to study the large global problems, to bring together the best research and the best data, and to present it as clearly as possible what the big problems are, and crucially, how we can make progress against them. And well, because there are many great problems, we have a very wide scope. We focus a lot on disease and, and health, but also on hunger, economic growth, technological progress. Um, we are very global and long-term in um, perspective. Joel Mocke will uh, pick up there later. Uh, we go back centuries, uh, millennia, and uh, big pandemics are a recurring theme then, of, of course. Um, in terms of reach, we are getting there for a small science publication. We have a good audience. Last month, we had um, 20 million visitors on the site, um, and then a much larger reach beyond that from people that use our work. Chris North um, invited me to this call. He uses it, for example, for his blog, and it's widely used in teaching, in the media, and so on. 
all of this is uh, free. And, and by the way, we're fundraising right now to do more work on the pandemic, uh, trying to um, um, reach a goal of $4 million. Um, on the pandemic, we started working back in February and really focused all of our efforts of the team of uh, less than 10 people on it. And our goal there is to provide the data that allows everyone around the world to understand how the pandemic is spreading and to understand which countries are doing better and which countries are doing worse. Because even at this early stage of the pandemic, um, we see that some countries are really coping relatively well and are doing clearly much better than others. And I expect that as this pandemic continues, we see larger and larger differences between those who do well and those who don't do quite so well, and it will be crucial to understand who is doing well and to learn from those. Um, on the work that we are doing right now, like early on, we focused a lot on uh, getting the media's reporting um, right. We were in touch with the BBC, the Financial Times, um, the, like really newspapers around the world, because I think a crucial mistake early on was to focus on um, the current numbers, the current numbers of cases and deaths, and they were very low. But that was never the right focus, and the focus should have been the growth rate from the start, because even from low counts, you get to really large numbers um, if you have a high growth rate, and that's what we've seen now. Now we've shifted our focus uh, to work on uh, testing data and generally on the poor uh, data um, on the pandemic globally, because I think a crucial problem right now is, is undercounting. We know that the total number of cases and deaths is much larger than the number of reported cases. Uh, we know this, for example, from research that studies the ratio between deaths and cases and makes assumption about the fatality rate. That suggests that in the US, for example, only 16% of cases um, are reported. So the total number is six times higher than what you see in the newspapers. In Italy, it's, it's even larger, um, only 6% there. And not even the number of deaths are right. We see this now from the so-called excess mortality statistics that are looking at the total number of people that died in the last month, and that's much higher. Um, so some of this might be due to unaccounted uh, COVID uh, deaths. And then what I already mentioned, what is crucial is, is the testing data. Everything that we see right now should really be interpreted via how much testing is done. There are some countries that did incredibly well. Iceland, tiny Iceland, is doing best <coughs> with 6.5% uh, of the total population tested. Uh, the U.S. is 20-fold behind, uh, only 5% of what Iceland is doing. And if you go to poorer countries, then you see hardly any testing. For example, Indonesia has a testing rate of 26 tests per million people. So there's no surprise that we don't see many confirmed cases and confirmed deaths. And what we also see is that those countries that did well, and there are countries that did well, Korea, Singapore, Norway, here in Europe, um, also, sub-national regions like Veneto in uh, the northern Italy, they did well because they were testing um, very early and very extensively. And vaccines might be very far away, but testing is possible right now. And our main focus right now is to bring together the testing data so that we see these large differences and we put pressure on the government and those that have the uh, power to increase testing and, and catch up with those countries that do well in this regard. Max, thank you very much. Um, our next speaker is Stephen Davis. He comes to us from the Booth School at the University of Chicago, where he's a professor of international business economics. Go ahead, Steve. 
Hey, thanks, Larry. Um, everyone on this call is well aware that the stock market has crashed since uh, late February, down by roughly 30%, and the market volatility has skyrocketed. Um, what I want to do is drill down a bit deeper, provide some historical context on that, highlight one sense in which it's unprecedented, and then ask why. So here's a simple statistic just to get your uh, wrap your heads around it. There were more large daily moves in the U.S. stock market in March 2020 than any other month in history back to 1900. Here I'm defining large as the market went up or down by at least 2.5% in a single day. Okay? So more of those jumps and marks than any time in history. If you look at kind of more standard encompassing measures of stock market volatility, what you find is that the period since, say, February 24th is in the same league as the period around the stock market crash of 1929, the early 1930s, the short-lived stock market crash of 1987, and the global financial crisis. So it's extraordinary. Now, the unprecedented aspect has to do with the role of the coronavirus. So I have a project uh, with several authors in which we have teams of trained human readers who read next-day newspaper accounts of uh, explanations for why the stock market rose or fall by at least 2.5% in a single day. The goal is to assess or characterize the contemporaneous perception of why the market moved. I'll tell you two things about that. First will will be no surprise. If you look in the period since uh, February uh, 24th, 90% of these big moves, of which there were an extraordinary number, as I talked about before, were attributed in next-day newspaper accounts to either the economic fallout of the coronavirus or policy responses to the coronavirus. Now, if you go back before February uh, 2020, all the way back to 1900, how many such uh, big market moves do you find attributed to the coronavirus? Zero. How many, do you defi- how many do you find attributed to the policy responses to the coronavirus? Zero. Okay? So that's the sense in which the last several weeks is, is, is extraordinary. Now, and unprecedented in terms of the and role you of mean the by that, that Steve, you mean by that is that um, the flu or the influenza has never caused a 2.5% market move before in history, and this is the only time. And yeah, is that just not, not, according, not according to contemporaneous perceptions, okay? Um, so now the paper that I circulated makes this same point in kind of a more automated, uh, sophisticated way going back to 1985, where, where instead of relying on humans to read articles, we use newspapers to uh, we use computers to read them in an automated manner and to characterize um, the content of articles about stock market volatility. And what you see there is you know, none of the previous viral episodes that we're aware of H1N1, SARS, and so on. Uh, you know, since 1985, they they barely register as a as a perceived explanation for stock market volatility. So that's another sense in which this episode is off the charts. Now, why? Um, obviously, part of the why answer is the, the fact that the coronavirus has grave implications for public health. Um, and, um, you know, we, don't, we, we know it's infectious. We don't yet know how infectious, how lethal, and so on. Um, but it's certainly a grave situation. But that, that explanation by itself is, is surely incomplete because it seems unlikely that that, at least in the developed economies, the mortality rate from the coronavirus will exceed what we experienced in the Spanish flu. And yet, as I've already said, there was much, there was, there was little visible impact uh, on the span of the Spanish flu on 
daily stock market moves or stock market volatility measures back in the 1918 to 1920 period. So why might that be? One natural hypothesis is that information diffuses a lot more rapidly now than it did a century ago. <laughs> that's almost certainly true. The question is whether that's the explanation. I think that's not the main explanation. And one way to see this is to look at stock market movements over periods of weeks and months during the Spanish flu episode. And there as well, you see nothing like what's happened in the U.S. Uh, in the past several weeks. So I discount that explanation. Two other explanations, which I give a lot of weight to. One um, is the highly interconnected nature of the modern economy. And Ed Glazer, in his remarks, already did a great job of drawing out this point, the importance of face-to-face -face interactions for, for innovation, for personal services, and, and um, you know, really for much of our economy. We've largely moved away from an agrarian and manufacturing-oriented economy to one in which face-to-face -face interactions are central, okay? The fourth reason, which interacts with the third, is the, dr the, the dramatic policy response, both individual uh, voluntary efforts to social distance, but then uh, compulsory efforts uh, or strongly recommended efforts by government. These have basically shut down much of the economy, and we heard some of this about in the auto sector and in the uh, uh, entertainment sector earlier, which I was quite struck by. Those policy responses and those individual voluntary responses interacting, they're, they're, they're especially potent in the modern economy because of the interconnected nature of the economy, because of urbanization that's grown up over the past century uh, and earlier. And th those two things together, I think, are what, are what it largely explains why there's been such an extraordinary stock market reaction uh, to the coronavirus. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Steve. Um, I mean, when you compare 1918 versus today, in 1918, the, the factories didn't close. People kept going to work. They weren't really aware of what was killing them. Do you think that the fact that we are now aware and have changed our behavior, is that what's causing the stock market decline? Isn't that well, that, that's kind of the fourth point. You know, we, we, we've had a much more dramatic behavioral and policy response this time, um, but it also has a bigger impact because the nature of the economy is a lot different today than it was 100 years ago. Okay. Uh, our next speaker, thank you, Steve. Our next speaker is Phil Fisher. Uh, um, go ahead, Phil. Hi, uh, and good afternoon, everyone. My topic is the pandemic fallout on the muni market. Uh, this discussion is reminiscent of 2010 when my friend Meredith Whitney, uh, then a preeminent TV analyst, forecast the demise of large portions of the muni market. It didn't happen, and she since retired from the scene. It ain't going to happen here. Uh, I want to start out by saying that states and local governments in this country have been through centuries of pandemics, as we've just heard, flu, yellow fever, diphtheria, you name it, and they're still standing. To be clear, the muni market will survive, but of course not without some pain. Uh, and state and local government revenues will mirror overall economic performance. A V-shaped GDP decline in recovery is a liquidity event, basically, uh, and, and not uh, uh, an economic destitution like the Depression. Uh, the Great Recession did not produce waves of defaults, and the V-shaped event shouldn't either. Uh, on the other hand, if it's not V and it starts being U and L, start multiplying. Uh, I want to say 
in my defense, uh, Pollyanna had left the house a long time ago. Um, but uh, muni problems are all going to show up on your t uh, TV, so let's take a look uh, for a minute at what the basics are. Uh, this, uh, before the formation of the Republic, uh, the colonies issued their own currencies. It was disastrous. In the Constitution, the states gave up the right to print money, but not the right to borrow money. That borrowing by states is what we know of as the muni market. Uh, states are in plenary control of the public borrowing, uh, but widely delegated. So there are about 80,000 or so muni issuers. So zeroing in on one or two is, uh, two is not really taking on the market. Uh, no state has defaulted since the Depression in 1937. Uh, 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 remember, the states are, uh, many of them are like big nation states. California has 40 million people and they have uh, wide-ranging resources. Most of the states are AAA. They're all investment grade, uh, although Illinois is uh, kind of close to the edge. There are several million QCIPs outstanding in the muni market, millions of different kinds of bonds, far more than in corporate, uh, corporate land. Uh, there are a wide variety of structures, but for credit purposes, uh, we divide those generally into governmental and non-governmental. On the governmental side, we have variations of tax-supported or revenue-supported credits. The important feature is that the primary user is, in fact, the public. The bonds are publicly owned, and the facilities are, uh, are not private. The privately owned facilities are financed by non-governmental bonds uh, that include private-purpose bonds, uh, which are allowed to, uh, uh, to borrow through a public conduit like a state financing authority. Most of the muni market is governmental, and that risk to those bonds is truly systematic. A city shuts down, everything shuts down. And there, uh, uh, that's why there are so very few defaults in the muni market. Essential purpose muni bonds are uh, generally very high credit with minimal defaults, uh, and I expect that to continue through this period. That having been said, uh, uh, pandemics are credit negative for almost any kind of bond. The rating agencies have promised and are delivering a blizzard of, of uh, negative ratings. Most of them are moderate announcements and warnings. That's certainly to be expected. Uh, they, uh, that will continue and that may get worse. Consumption declines are affecting state tax revenues. Uh, uh, the income tax receipts are uh, being negatively impacted by the one percenters uh, in their stock market losses. The delay of uh, tax states to July 15 doesn't help. The offset uh, with stimulus package will help a bit. Local governments and states are being hit already. The state of New York just passed a budget. It's probably $10 billion in the hole uh, by the time it was signed. So what are the negatives? Uh, if you're looking at credit in the muni market, you worry if they're unrated, worry if they're not essential purpose, worry if they're revenue uh, versus tax-backed, worry about whether the pensions are unfunded. You worry about whether they're in sectors like healthcare, higher ed, travel, entertainment. But there are pluses. Muni market's high grade. The Fed's buying uh, bonds uh, and significantly increasing their liquidity. The Congress is mulling another stimulus bill, including BABs. Rainy day funds are at their record levels. The size of the muni market has shrunk for years. There are going to be defaults. You'll hear about them all over the place. 
uh, they are a small percentage of the market, uh, mostly mostly private purpose. Uh, we're going to see unrated bonds in the ten, which are about 10% of the market, have a lot of credit problems, just like their corporate counterparts. Uh, and we should remember that if a unit of state or local government gets into trouble, it's Chapter 9 bankruptcy, not 11, and governmental rules are very different, and I'll leave it at that. Terrific, Bill. Um, our next speaker is Chris Renati. Uh, Chris and I work together at Solomon Brothers. Um, he's now on to different things, uh, looking at our poor Americans, and he has a new book out called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, thank, thank you, everybody. Um, what I want to talk about is what I call the pandem- pandemic gap, which um, <clears throat> most of the discussions I've been hearing in the, in the media and certainly here um, is being viewed through the lens of the wealthy. That isn't a criticism. That's just a reality. Um, the result, I kind of two points I just want to emphasize. When you take into account a broader perspective, this is going to hit the poor much harder. Um, both both in the U.S. and uh, globally. This is going to basically evolve into a disease of the poor. And I think that is going to have large economic consequences, obviously has large moral consequences. But much more, I think, important for this crowd is it's going to have a lot of p- big political consequences that I think people aren't really thinking through properly right now. First and foremost, if you go to the U.S., when you think about the general language being talked about this thing, it's really, again, being spoken about by people like us, like me, like most of you listeners, who are literally squirreled away from in home, um, and in nice homes, being able to um, work from home. The, the reality for a lot of America is um, you just cannot quarantine. Um, it's, to be blunt, it's, it's a hell of an exercise, um, and people can't do it easily, and they eventually won't be doing it. There's going to be a lot of um, pushback against it. The logistics are just too awful. The reality is just too awful. You could Google Patterson houses, Bronx, if you want to look at one form of that. Um, when you talk about shelter in, in place, place is doing a lot of work there. Um, you know, if you live in a four, fourth floor walk up and nine people are sharing one bathroom, you're not going to want to spend a month there and you're certainly not going to want to spend two months. Um, in addition, home life is just a lot more complicated. Yes, it's the reality of poverty. Um, you can't buy deep freezers to store things. You don't have space to store things. You don't have green space to escape into. Um, think about the other thing I would call the laundromat gap. I think a lot of us here on this call have probably last used a laundromat maybe in high school or college, but a lot of Americans have to go to a laundromat. They do not have things in their homes. The other one is the Wi-Fi gap. One of my projects was spending a lot of time in McDonald's where people use the free Wi-Fi Certainly with a lot of things moving online, a lot of people, a lot of poor, poor Americans do not have Wi-Fi. They don't have cars to drive to get to parking lots with Wi-Fi. Um, you know, if you live in a trailer and you have three generations there and, you know, <laughs> some of those generations don't get along, again, people are not going to quarantine to the degree that we're able to quarantine. They're not going to socially distance. You simply cannot do that. And I think... As this thing evolves, that's going to have large political consequences, especially if this goes into May. Um, That's certainly true globally as well. Um, I would just say, again, if you want to Google something, Google um, Jakarta Kampong, K-A-M-P-U-N-G. If you want to see how roughly one billion 
people in the world live. They live, they cannot simply socially distance. There's just utterly impossible. Sanitation isn't there. Um, so consequently, this, is, this disease, which we can, we can escape, um, is going to spread into poor neighborhoods, um, and it's going to be very disastrous at a um, both moral level um, and virtually a p- political level, because what's going to happen is our inequality that exists in this world is rarely so exhibited as it is now, where you know the wealthy are generally working from home and mansions and surviving, and the poor are having to work to keep shit running and being exposed to um, to, to a disease that's going to kill them because of, again, lower health qualities. Chris, thank you. Um, when you, you you told me before you spent a month in Jakarta. Um, how how do you think these mega emerging market cities? What's what's going to happen there? I, I you know. I think there's a lot of questions why it's not popping up right now in um, the slums and the kampongs and the townships of South Africa. Um, some people talk about heat and humidity, but the reality is, again, if you just Google Jakarta Kampong, it's going, to, it's going to spread in them if it goes into them, and it will go into them, and it's going to be devastating. So beyond the moral issue, there's the pragmatic issue that these are going to be reservoirs of this disease that can boomerang back into the, into the G7 communities, into the wealthier neighborhoods. So in that sense, it's always going to be simmering in the, quote, literal back row. Um, so, and again, I think the political consequences are going to be much more dramatic than I think people are realizing because this is going to fuel a lot of populism because, again, rarely is inequality so, so displayed as it is on, on display as it is now. Chris, thank you. Um, our next speaker is Steve Krasner. Uh, Steve is a professor of international relations at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Go ahead, Steve. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much. I assume that all of you can hear me. So what I want to say is basically that, you know, how much does the COVID-19 epidemic change things in international relations? I want to say not all that much. I think the United States went through a very exceptional period in the Cold War from 1946 you know, maybe till the year 2000. I mean, we had an opponent that was ideologically opposed to us. We had an opponent that was strategically opposed to us. Um, it was relatively easy for the United States to, to react. What you've seen since 2000 are a series of crises which the United States has clearly not re- reacted to very well. It was 9-11, uh, the financial crisis in 2008, and now COVID-19. Um, and in all those cases, I mean, what you can clearly say is that the United States either reacted ineptly or did not react as an effective leader. Um, if you look at the world writ large, I mean, I think there are three kinds of countries that are out there in the world. I mean, one, there are consolidated democracies. If you look at Western Europe, with the exception of Germany, if you look at the large countries, they haven't done very well. Now, gr- granted, we don't know what the day are, but I looked at the um, Washington Post data uh, for this morning on the number of deaths. And the U.S. is kind of in the middle. I mean, it clearly has done worse than Singapore and South Korea, but it's done better than, say, Italy and Spain. Um, so the United States has done badly, but it hasn't done as badly as the worst countries. If you look at France or Great Britain, uh, Spain and Italy, they've done worse than the United States. So... Basically, I mean, what we see is not the United States as a leader, but also not the United States as being totally inept. 
Now, I think if you take a step back, I mean, I think the real issue for the United States is if, the United, if we had a world order that was led by the United States uh, effectively during the Cold War and not so effectively since, is that the United States has writ large not done very well. I mean, I was, I've been reading this book by um, Anne Case and Angus Deaton called um, Deaths of Despair. I think that's the title. I mean, there's declining life expectancy in the United States for poorly educated whites. For people that haven't gotten at least a college degree, the life expectancy has gone down. This is really shocking. Uh, the only other place where I know that happened is in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Um, uh, if you look, I, I notice nobody has mentioned contemporary politics, so congratulations, guys. But you look at, at the upcoming election, say Trump versus Biden, I mean, he's not exactly a great candidate. Um, so the question, I think, for the, United States, for the United States, if we're thinking about American leadership and we're thinking about how this might be effective for international relations, is whether the United States can write its own ship, which up to now there's no indication that it can do. Um, so I think effective leadership will depend on not being an effective uh, leader in developing countries, most developing countries are autocratic regimes. There isn't much, in my view, there isn't much that we can do. Uh, we can see that even consolidated democracies like Spain and Italy didn't react to this virus very well. And there's no indication now that we have a leader who's going to actually um, deal with deaths of despair, dealing with declining life expectancy for whites, um, deal effectively with a crisis within the United States. I mean, this is very much... Uh, consistent with what the last speaker said, that I think the main problem in the United States is that we haven't found the right formula. Now, that isn't to say that any other country has the right formula either, but I think, you know, we had an international en environment and an international system which worked very well for 40 or 50 years after the end of the Cold War and isn't working very well now. It worked very well because the United States was able to exercise effective leadership. I think that effective leadership was dependent on the United States itself functioning effectively, and my sense is that the United States is not functioning very effectively now, and if we look at the upcoming election, there's no indication that we have a political leader who could be effective. Steve, thank you so much. Um, Alan, are you on the line? Yes. Great. Oh, Our next yeah. speaker is Alan Quartzman. He's an anesthesiologist at Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey. Alan, you're in the middle of the storm. What do you see? Alan? Alan, did we lose you? I tell you what, while we're having some technical difficulties, we'll go to our next speaker. Uh, Charlie Schwartz comes to us from Oakland, where he's a, cardi a cardiovascular surgeon. Charlie, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead, Charlie. So, Larry asked me to discuss uh, some aspects of the response at, at uh, medical centers. I'm a cardiac surgeon. I spent 15 years at NYU at a large academic medical center, and now I run cardiac and thoracic surgery at a large suburban hospital in Michigan. Uh, we're outside of Detroit. We've become a true hotspot. Um, we have a large number of sick COVID patients for a variety of reasons. We're predicted here to uh, peak in the next two weeks. Um, clearly, it's one of the most challenging times for hospitals across the country. Many of us could really never imagine this scenario. Um, 
We're at a point where entire hospitals are devoted to COVID patients. Everything else has nearly come to a complete halt. Um, it's obviously a difficult time for both patients and healthcare workers. Uh, you've all read about the resource allocation of uh, personal protective equipment. This is this PPE that we're all talking about. The amount of PPE necessary to take care of these patients is extraordinary. I mean, it, just one set of rounds in the ICU uses an incredible number of gloves, gowns, masks, etc. I, I personally know many doctors and nurses that are sick across the country. These include anesthesiologists, ear, nose, and throat specialists, internists, cardiologists. Some have mild symptoms. Others are in the ICU on supplemental oxygen. Others are even on ventilators. So the, the care of these patients, once they've been triaged and admitted from the ER, usually falls to intensivists. So these are ICU specialists in critical care medicine. Some of these patients need immediate intubation and placement on ventilators. Others are more stable, can be admitted to a floor, which usually this floor is dedicated to only COVID patients. The treatment includes a variety of medication and management of really complex management of ventilators. Some include high-dose steroids. We're, what we're treating is this incredible inflammatory response, what we these patients have a huge cytokine release. This is our body trying to fight this virus. Also, these patients are struggling with renal insufficiency, and some go on to renal failure, trying to prevent multi-system organ failure, which is causing their eventual death. We're using such variety of treatments at once, it's actually difficult to know what is working, which is a real problem. Every hospital has tried to cohort these patients to specific areas, and there's Honestly, there's been mixed results with this the, across the country. It's proven difficult because these patients now present with a variety of symptoms. It's not necessarily just cough, fever, shortness of breath. So they can be admitted to a non-COVID unit at first, and then several days later they become COVID positive and seemingly infect, what, you know, quote-unquote, a, a clean unit. Some hospitals have planned to transfer COVID patients that are stable to large field hospitals to recover. I think that's an excellent idea to decrease pressure on hospitals, but it, it will only be successful as long as the appropriate patients are sent there. That's key. Obviously, you know, we don't want these patients back and, uh, if they decompensate. Large hospitals have what we call a, a surge plan. Almost every hospital has one. It's for crisis situations and catastrophes where Surgeons, internists, and other specialists are all called in to cover other units and help in any way. But uh, and so most hospitals have put this, this plan in place to some extent, enabling non-COVID patients to be cared for by others. Elective surgery, as you've all heard, has been canceled uh, in almost every hospital across the country. So we're only operating on true emergent cases now. Um, in my hospital, we have not converted every operating room to an ICU. Uh, every hospital situation is different. Right now, we do have uh, the resources in the ICU at the moment. So as a cardiac surgeon, my patients require the two most important resources we have in the country right now. That's an ICU bed and a ventilator. So every patient is discussed in terms of urgency and how necessary each operation is. We... Uh, we are, in fact, very concerned about other patients not coming into the hospital, fearing COVID. And these patients could be struggling at home with chest pain, shortness of breath, or other symptoms. It's, 
it really is it's incredible how stable our patients have become, just fearing being an inpatient at this time. Testing overall has uh, continued to improve almost on a daily basis. Our inpatients and our healthcare workers are able to get their results back quicker, and this is really, it's critical for us. We can get our people back to work and not quarantine at home waiting for results. I've, uh, I've personally operated on, on hundreds of patients with HIV and hepatitis C in the past, and these are all high-risk individuals. But I'll tell you what, this disease is very different. It, uh, it's much more out of our control. It's invisible. It's highly contagious and very persistent on surfaces. The, the dedication of our teams has been incredible. I mean, I, I can't say enough about the care that they've provided. There's, there's no doubt that there will be profound effects on hospital finances um, as the number of procedures and surgery has diminished. Here in Michigan, we've been given the green light in early May to operate again, but that may change uh, depending on the COVID population. Happy to answer any questions, Larry. How um, are patients getting better in the hospital? Is and, and do you feel like they're successful in some of the treatments? What what, what is so the overall? Overall, we're we're seeing a third of the patients that are on ventilators uh, come off ventilators. And um, um, so, yes, uh, patients are, you know, the, the sickest patients are getting better. It is uh, one common theme is that these it's very unpredictable in terms of, you know, we can have young patients that look very stable and their shortness of breath really progresses. They become more and more epoxic and two days later they require a ventilator. It's, it's, incredible how unpredictable it is in terms of uh, their lung injury. Okay. Alan, are you back on the line? Yes, I am. Thank you. Go ahead, Alan. Uh, so, unfortunately, the information, anecdotal information that we're getting out of New York and New Jersey over the past week uh, is actually demonstrating that ventilators may actually be doing in certain situations more harm than good. Uh, this really demonstrates how fluid and frightening the situation is for medicine and really how much of a different animal we are than the corporate world. Um, normal time frames for medicine to like implement therapeutic and process change is usually discussed in terms of years. So you can imagine in a situation with COVID that uh, how disruptive this compressed time frame has been. So in going from years to days to weeks. So we're getting poor and inaccurate data collection. We're not getting any good studies. There's really very no hard science and a lot of disjointed treatment plans. And unfortunately, this is all leading to fragmented processes with unclear or actually faulty outcomes. And the issue with the ventilators uh, is just a prime example. Now, just to put things in context, uh, what we found as anesthesiologists that the tipping point really between life and death is being placed on a ventilator. Uh, generally, this is occurring anywhere from about seven to 10 days after infection. And for an anesthesiologist, uh, a ventilator is really our big bazooka. It's sort of our last line of defense. And unfortunately, if you can't, if you, if you fail a ventilator, there is maybe other than some very, very specific treatments like ECMO, um, really no other solutions. 
And what we found from the information coming out of New York and New Jersey is that the ventilators may actually be causing some sort of trauma or causing progression of the disease of the virus in the lungs. So what the virus does is um, when it's replicating in the lungs, it causes a significant immune response, and then your body uh, has this response against the virus, and it's laying down these thick layers um, between the lungs and your bloodstream so that the oxygen is having a hard time passing through. What we're finding is that with the ventilators, that in some cases, that this may actually be causing um, these thick layers to become scar tissue. And as I said before, to put in context, um, if you have an 80% death rate uh, once you've been put on a ventilator, and that's sort of what we're seeing nationally, uh, that's equivalent or probably higher than if you were infected with Ebola during the 2014 outbreak. Um, so what this has done is caused uh, intensive care and anesthesiologists to relook at what's happening and I'll explain briefly how ventilators help patients. And basically what that does is we put a breathing tube into their windpipe, and then when you hook them up to a ventilator, you're able to provide greater levels of oxygen into the lungs. And what you're doing is you're pushing the oxygen through this thick barrier so that you're able to get more oxygen into the bloodstream. What uh, what's come out of, again, out of New York and New Jersey is to change uh, treatment modalities. And what they found is that by using high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, patients can hopefully stay off the ventilators and by staying off the ventilators may have um, better outcomes and significantly reduce mortality rates. Other concerns that we've had um, is that there's no proven therapeutic intervention for COVID. We only have supportive care, which is oxygen, nasal cannula, CPAPs, and ventilators. Um, we've been talking about possible dual therapies with the hydroxychloroquine and the DPAC, but based on the information from uh, the intensivists at our hospital, that the results, unfortunately, are not as promising as that they had hoped, which is very, very concerning. Uh, the other issue is that it's like a medical tsunami. We just have waves of sick patients, and these patients, you know, the overwhelming numbers of patients are requiring intubations. And most of our hospitals, we see they're setting intubation records in a 24-hour period. And you're hearing a lot about national shortages uh, with respect to um, ventilator uh, shortages, but you never really hear about the anesthesia equipment shortages. And for us, uh, we have to use specialized equipment, which is part of our PPE. And unfortunately, the batteries for this specialized equipment is coming out of Wuhan. So there's been significant, um, uh, significant lag time for us to get this, uh, to get these batteries and to get these equipment so that we're finding that they're being allocated basically to just hotspots throughout the country. Other issues that, you know, that we're dealing with um, just mentally, it's just been very, very difficult and challenging to come to terms that when we are intubating a patient, 80% um, of the time we may be the last face that they see 
and it's gotten so bad with the mortality rate that um, at the time of intubation, staff is then speaking to families to ask them uh, how or where they would like their families' remains stored. So it's just been a very, very uh, challenging time uh, for medicine and for anesthesia. And we're just, uh, we just continue to, you know, we're just continuing to innovate and evolve as best we can and hoping that um, we will come up with some better therapeutic interventions. Alan, thank you so much, and thank you uh, for the work you're doing. Um, our next speaker is Joel Moker. Joel is a professor at Northwestern in both economics and history. Go ahead, Joel. Thank you. Um, I want to take a much more of a longer view of of, of this event, and um, you know, go back to what uh, William McNeil, who was a great historian at the University of Chicago, uh, pointed out many years ago, and that is, we can really look at history as a you know a long struggle of people versus microbes and viruses, and that this has been a continuous war that has started from the very beginning of mankind and probably before. And that every once in a while, um, a big pandemic really changes the course of history. Um, Ed already mentioned the uh, Justinian plague, but in fact, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is often bookmarked. You know, between the so-called Antonine plague, which started in about the second century uh, A.D., and that the Justinian plague was just a sort of ultimate failure and of, of the Roman Empire to stay together. But the Middle Ages itself, of course, are you know, bookmarked by the, by the famous Black Death, which is probably the mother of all pandemics. And we should, of course, not forget that much of the pre-Columbian population of America was uh, destroyed by a wave of pandemics that Europeans brought with them, to which they themselves had become partially immune, such as smallpox and measles, and essentially wiped out much of the original population um, uh, of the continent. And so, um, you know, very often pandemics change history, and the question is, does history also change um, pandemics? And so to what extent had the, these pandemics changed as a result of, of, of economic development? And so here there's sort of bad news and good news uh, to some extent. The bad news is that because the world has become much more integrated, um, I don't like to use the word globalization, but maybe here it, it's appropriate, uh, that means that microorganisms get around the world much faster than they used to be. All of the previous pandemics, as far as we can tell, have been the result of contact between uh, societies that previously were not in contact. Of course, the, the, the great Colombian uh, exchange is, is the biggest example of that, but others as well. And of course, now when an, a pandemic breaks out in one place, it, it, it spreads practically simultaneously to the rest of the world. That's what we've seen in the last three months, because three months is, of course, a very short time. I mean, you look at, at, at pandemics uh, in the past. And so the more integrated we are, the more globalized we are, the more likely that any uh, outbreak of an, of an uh, pandemic in one place is going to affect the world as a whole and uh, exposed previously unexposed populations. The other thing, of course, is that viruses and microbes keep mutating, 
And um, perhaps the rate of mutation has accelerated. There are some people who believe that. Uh, I'm not actually sure. But what is clear is that, that they are getting immune to things that we throw at them, and so we have to keep um, uh, uh, working. The good news, of course, is that in the past century, we are continuously learning, finally, what it is that's hitting us. And in that sense, uh, this pandemic is very, very different, even from the uh, the Spanish flu that people talked about. In 1918, people had no clue what it was that hit them. In fact, the realization that this was a virus wasn't actually made until 1933, 15 years after it broke out. They didn't just didn't know. And, um, you know, we have become, gotten so good at controlling infectious disease that, that this pandemic has hit us, you know, with surprise. Remember that in the U.S. at the beginning of the 20th century, um, the mortality rate uh, from infectious disease, including both viral and, and, and bacterial diseases, to be sure, fell from 800 to 60 per 100,000 people. That is a decline of 92%. In, in our world, until you know, February, infectious disease was also ran in terms of what's killing us. Um, now it's back. We don't know how, how big it's going to be. But it's not the same. And, and generalizing from history would be extremely dangerous here because we are, you know, despite all the problems, despite difficult uh, uh, transition dynamics that we're facing, we are better equipped to deal with this than anybody has ever been before. And what we're throwing at this virus, you know, it will take a little while until we find a vaccine, but nobody has any doubt that within a year, 18 months, people bandy around these numbers. We will have something, and what's more, the techniques that we develop uh, to fight this virus will stand us in good service when the next one hits. And so the good news is that in the very long run, in the war between people and microorganisms, we're winning. But this is a rear-end battle, and it may be a bloody one. It may be last a few years. It will cause a great deal of damage to the, uh, 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 to the economy. But this isn't going to be the Black Death or the Justinian Plague or anything like that. We have molecular virology. We have computational genomics. We have cellular immunology. We have advanced models of epidemiologists. Uh, uh, which we can throw at this. Remember, we had the damn virus's gene sequenced within a few weeks after it came out. Um, we know who the enemy is, and that puts us as a huge, at a huge advantage compared to the poor people who were struggling with the Black Death and never knew what hit them. And so, and in the long run, there may be at least two or three good results from this, apart from the fact that we're learning a lot more about how to deal with viruses. One is that we may get better at working from a distance and that this will enhance telework finally. And the second thing that this hopefully, put, once a vaccine is found, that this will, will put an end to the miserable anti-vaccine movement, which refuses to go away. But it isn't Joel, going to be the like this. Joe, it was great to hear that sort of historical optimism. Uh, our next speaker is Ernie Freeberg. Ernie comes to us from uh, University of Tennessee at Knoxville, where he's a professor in the Department of History. Uh, he's re recently written an article on the great flu, the horse flu of 1871. Go ahead, Ernie. Thanks, Larry. Uh, and uh, did, I'm working on a book about the origin of animal rights in America and ran into this story, and uh, I hope people find that it has some 
useful residents for today. Uh, in the fall of 1872, actually, it was uh, a horse influenza erupted uh, in Toronto first uh, and spread extremely rapidly to other major cities across North America. And ultimately, it hit just about every city and area on the continent. And it was really a, not till a year later uh, that it burned out when it hit Nicaragua. And this flu caused horses to develop a racking cough. Uh, many of them collapsed, high fevers. Uh, and there was, there was no social distancing for horses in the crowded stables uh, of American cities. So when the flu arrived in the city, it spread rapidly. And within just a few days, uh, up to 90, 95% of the city's animals would be sick. Those animals that were forced to work anyway, uh, in spite of having the illness, uh, developed a terrible secondary complication uh, that often led them to die a very quick and painful death. About 5% of the horses and mules across North America died uh, in the fall of 1872. But just as importantly, uh, in one city after another, most of these horses were unable to work for uh, anywhere between three and six weeks. And this caused an intense economic and social shock that I think has some interesting parallels to our own uh, current sudden economic and social crisis. First of all, the horse flu made visible the absolute dependence of society on horsepower at the time. As we put it today, the supply chain uh, was revealed to be terribly vulnerable to a disruption caused by disease. And, and I outlined many of those issues in the paper that was sent around. Uh, no coal or fuel could make it to market. The fall harvest was rotting on the banks of the Erie Canal and other depots. Uh, we think of railroads as being uh, the dominant for form of transportation in this era, but they also relied on horses in order to bring materials to and from the depot. In fact, in some cities, uh, railroads refused to even stop. Pittsburgh is an example uh, because there was, uh, they ran out of places to put the packages and materials that had already been piled up at the depots. And while humans didn't catch the virus, uh, the economic anxiety caused by the disease uh, led many to stay at home, and quite a number of businesses were bankrupted by the sudden economic shock. In fact, some have suggested uh, that this was one of the factors uh, that caused a major depression uh, the following year, the Panic of 1873. And some of the social dislocations uh, that they experienced during this flu will sound familiar. Uh, people couldn't congregate, uh, not because they were sick, because they were suddenly forced to walk wherever they went. And so political rallies and parades, it was an election year that year, uh, those were canceled. Uh, weddings and funerals were all disrupted because they all relied on horse transportation. People suddenly realized how fragile the systems were that made city life possible. If the disease had lasted uh, another month, many suggested, millions would have faced a winter without heat and without food. So in my uh, examination of how uh, American society responded to that, I, I found sort of three major uh, responses worth talking about. One is a, a wider empathy for horses uh, that contributed to an anti-cruelty movement uh, that was just in its infancy in 1872. And here we see uh, the law enforcement uh, stepping in. The ASPCA had power under the law to interfere with people's individual liberty, uh, not by sending them home, but by sending their horses home. If they found a sick horse, uh, they would stop them in the street and, and send them back to the barn. And this, again, puts uh, economic mobility uh, at a standstill. Another outcome was a confused national debate among scientists and doctors about what caused the disease. As Joel was talking about, uh, there was an enormous confusion about uh, what, what the disease actually was and, and how it might be prevented in the future. And as Joel suggested here, we can take some uh, comfort in how far we've come. 
the spread of this virus was easy to map uh, for the first time. Every city newspaper marked the arrival of the virus, and the Telegraph made the spread of this virus national news. And so the early field of epidemiology could see that the disease was radiating out uh, from its source in Toronto over months and spreading quickly along the main commercial routes. And they were able to construct a continental-wide map that made the spread over time visible. And this is sort of an early version of the maps that we uh, look at every morning ourselves on our newspapers. But germ theory was in its infancy in the 1870s, and it would be decades before microscopes who's strong enough to, to see the bacteria and viruses. Uh, in fact, nobody's really quite sure what this, uh, this disease was. Uh, it's called the horse flu, but, it, but uh, nobody's quite sure. So scientists really could not agree uh, on the origin and the spread of the horse flu. There were advocates of the controversial theory uh, of germs that argued that the disease was being passed uh, by contact between animals. But when the flu arrived in a city, so many animals got, quick, got sick so quickly uh, that skeptics doubted that physical face-to-face -face contact could be the cause. Right now, we're spending a lot of time talking about aerosol and sneezing, uh, and uh, people did not understand that. Uh, so instead, they looked for wider environmental explanations. There's a federal report that was uh, conducted after the event uh, where they considered all the theories, including uh, ancient ideas about uh, disease, volcanoes, earthquakes, and lightning. And more commonly, uh, those skeptical of germ theory believed the disease was caused by bad air. Since doctors couldn't agree, many folk remedies were promoted. Uh, some were useless, like keeping a boat a goat in the barn. Others were harmful, including the use of arsenic. The horse flu was not the only uh, serious epizootic at the time, but it did focus national attention on the problem, and we traced the development of the first uh, university vet schools back to these years. One final point, and this was that uh, a time when Americans were sure that there was a technological solution to most problems. Uh, if horses proved vulnerable to disease, then the next step was to replace them with machines. Cities had always banned steam engines uh, in their downtown streets because they were noisy and they terrified horses, they caused fires, and they often exploded. But during the horse flu epidemic, cities encouraged and even demanded that transportation companies begin to experiment with new technologies of steam and hydraulic and cable cars. The flu contributed to all these changes, but, but was only accelerating trends that were already present uh, because it did not last long enough to provoke rapid change. Uh, and that's a final point I want to end with, and that is that an epidemic can cause a violent shock to society, but its long-term impact depends on how long it lasts. Thanks. Ernie, thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Jeremy Brown. Uh, he is the author of Influenza, the 100-Year Hunt to Cure the 1918 Spanish Flu. He's currently the Director of the Office of Emergency Care Research, where he leads efforts to coordinate emergency care research funding opportunities across the NIH. Jeremy, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, this has been a, a fascinating uh, conversation, uh, hearing so many different aspects of uh, what is going on. I was particularly touched, I think, uh, by reference earlier this afternoon to the fact that this is really a a disease that is bifurcating us in, in terms of our, our incomes and who we are and where we live. I have often reflected with my own family on how relatively unscathed we, <clears throat> we all are um, in terms of still uh, getting a salary uh, and living in a, in a very uh, comfortable way, uh, very removed from the virus, where um, in places uh, elsewhere in the United States, this is something that is uh, causing people um, all kinds of uh, catastrophic changes, uh, not to mention the, the, the illness and the, and the death that comes with it. 
So um, I really just want to echo what was said earlier. I think that we really must think about this in terms of uh, the, those who have means and those who don't uh, and do all that we can really to reach out uh, and to make the lives of those people who, uh, as was mentioned earlier, have to traipse to the, um, to the laundry to do their, to do their laundry. Uh, uh, people uh, who are in those uh, circumstances are very different uh, from those of us uh, who are able to sit at home and write this out. So I just wanted to, to sort of um, echo that thought. I thought it was a very, very important thing that was said. I, I've um, written a lot about um, what we're going through now in terms of 1918. Uh, the book that I wrote um, was really a history of the uh, influenza epidemic and just as important as the history was uh, what we have done in the last hundred years to, uh, to change our encounter with influenza, uh, what we've learned and how far we still have to go. Uh, and I think the lesson for me, uh, as I've written in the Atlantic and elsewhere, is that this is not another 1918. Uh, although as we uh, get more and more into this, perhaps I'll have to uh, qualify uh, my remarks. Um, as has already been said, um, from the beginning, uh, we have known a lot about this virus. Within two weeks of its initial description, a Chinese team had uh, published the full genome of COVID-19 in a major US medical journal. So it was in English. Um, and um, that should be contrasted with um, the fact that back in 1918, people had no idea what it was that was killing them. As, as, we've, uh, as we've heard, there were all kinds of theories around from volcanic eruptions to the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, which is where incidentally, we get the name influenza from, from the Latin influenza, meaning influence. It was thought to be uh, the influence of the of the stars that caused the disease. So I think the first big difference is in clearly in our understanding of it. Uh, the second big difference between now, uh, between COVID-19 and influenza 18, if you will, is that the great influenza pandemic of 1918 occurred in the pre-antibiotic era. And this is very important because although antibiotics don't treat viruses, and that's important to remember next time you ask for them when you have a viral infection, so although they don't treat um, uh, viruses, they certainly do treat the secondary bacterial infections that sometimes follow. And it is these secondary infections that cause severe pneumonia and were likely responsible for most of the deaths back in 1918. Now, we heard earlier today about uh, the complications that people can get when they're put on uh, ventilators. Uh, but many of these patients um, will have uh, secondary bacterial pneumonias that we can at least uh, treat uh, in many cases with antibiotics. So we are now living in, a, in, a, in an antibiotic era that was simply not available 100 years ago. And hopefully uh, those antibiotics can be used to treat some of the secondary complications, not the primary infection itself, but the secondary complications and reduce uh, the, the, birth, the, um, the death rate. Um, and um, I think the other um, uh, um, things are worth mentioning are the antivirals. Um, these are a whole different class of medications that actually attack the virus itself as opposed to the secondary uh, infections that follow. Um, there are uh, many antivirals that are being tested. We've recently learned of a couple of disappointing results in this area, but at least these drugs are being studied. And to date, there are at least 100 clinical trials out there that are studying ways to treat uh, the infection itself. And then you know, the, the, the other piece of this is the difference in the medical system. A hundred years ago, your doctor was as likely to arrive on horseback as, as any other means. Um, it was, he was always a he, and he was just as likely 
to deliver your baby, remove your appendix, or set your broken bones uh, as to treat your influenza. Today, we have uh, specialists who really focus on, um, on, on an area enabling them to provide a care that is just unimaginable 100 years ago. And we take this for granted today. Uh, but but, but the, the, the specialties of emergency medicine, the physicians, nurses who are on, really on the front lines and then supported uh, in hospital with intensivists and anesthesiologists, pulmonologists and all the rehab people as well to help get the lungs back into working condition. Um, these are really um, uh, specialties that, um, as I said, were unimaginable 100 years ago uh, and certainly will change the outcome for many people. I think if there is one um, area to really think about uh, that we do have in common, um, I think it's that area of fear. Um, back in, um, in 1918, um, people didn't know what was killing them. And as I mentioned in the book, um, a thousand public health officials gathered in Chicago to discuss uh, the influenza outbreak, which by then had killed about 400,000 people over a three-month period. And uh, rather famously, uh, the uh, Chicago Health Commissioner stood up and said, it's, um, it's our duty to keep people from fear. He said, worry kills more people than the epidemic. For my part, let them wear a rabbit's foot on a gold watch chain if they want it, if it will help them to get rid of the psychological action of fear. Um, we don't have to resort to rabbit's feet on gold watch chains, but I do think that there is a comparison there. Um, people are certainly afraid today of what's going on and, and with every justification. Just a raw calculation that I did based on the uh, Hopkins scoreboard uh, of the infection shows that we are currently somewhere around 325,000 uh, infections in the U.S. and somewhere around uh, around uh, 3,000, uh, excuse me, 9,000 deaths in the U.S., which gives us a very crude death rate of about 3%. Uh, that is up there with the death rate during 1918. So notwithstanding everything that I've just said about uh, these uh, uh, interventions that we have, uh, it's certainly the very crude death rate is, is somewhere around 3%. Now, uh, that, that I think is likely to fall as we discover more and more people who are asymptomatic carriers or more and more testing is done on people and they're confirmed to have the disease but are not particularly ill. But um, the crude death rate, as I said, at least by my calculation, is somewhere around 3% today in the U.S., and uh, that is uh, a number that is staggering, uh, and certainly that is a number that, um, you know, when we think about 1918, we think about death rates in the 2 to 3% area. Some places, of course, uh, saw um, upwards of 80% uh, of the population die. That happened in, uh, in, in Breving, Alaska, uh, where 72 out of the 80 village elders died uh, in the influenza epidemic of 1918. So this aspect, I think, of fear is something that we do have in common with our great-grandparents who lived through the 1918 epidemic. And um, as we go forward, I think we will learn a lot more about some of the similarities that we have uh, as, and as, we, uh, as this, this um, epidemic eventually uh, subsides, which I hope it will in the warmer months of uh, spring and summer, uh, because coronavirus is a winter virus and I think we are all hopeful that it will act just like all the other winter viruses and go away. Uh, we will perhaps remember that that's what happened with influenza in 1918. But of course, what happened then in the fall of 1918 was that it came back uh, and actually turned out to be, uh, it was the same virus, but it turned out to be uh, uh, much more deadly uh, in, the, in the fall and the winter of 1918. Whether or not that will occur with coronavirus remains to be seen. Uh, all, of, all of us, of course, hope 
uh, that this will be uh, a, a singular event uh, and not be and not uh, and not sort of return in the fall, but we don't know that yet. Uh, and so I think the fear is um, is actually justified. I think it is. And thank you for your time. Jeremy, we're going to have some questions and answers uh, after Saul's session, so stick with us. Um, Saul, are you Thank on the you, line? Thank you, Saul? Saul, can you hear me? All right, I think I'm having some technical difficulties uh, with Saul, but hopefully he, I'm going to send Saul an email and tell him if he's on the wrong phone number. Um, Jeremy, why don't I come back with some questions for you uh, in the meantime? You talked a little bit about sure. uh, the summer being different than the rest of the year. In the book, you mentioned experiment with animals where they, uh, you blew uh, the virus at the animals, uh, but when the temperature got to be 86 degrees and high humidity, the animals couldn't catch the virus. What do you think is, uh, why does the virus seem to survive in some places uh, better than others? Um, and, and, yeah, and maybe some yeah this is just a simple yeah, it's just a simple feature of biology. So the virus is very simple. It's essentially a, uh, you know, a, a group of genes, RNA genes, surrounded by an envelope. And that envelope is sensitive, for instance, to uh, detergents. So um, warm, washing with warm water and detergents actually breaks down that viral envelope uh, and destroys uh, the vaccine, uh, excuse me, destroys the virus particle. Um, and so we know that, um, that the winter viruses are very sensitive to temperature and humidity. I mean, we know this without really thinking about it because we experience a flu season each year, right? We, we start seeing ads to, to, to get our flu vaccines in the early fall. Uh, and by early spring, nobody really talks about flu anymore until the whole cycle begins again. And that's really a feature of the weather. So, for example, in temperate climates in, in the, around the equator, for example, the, well, there isn't really much change in the temperature year round. Um, there is a flu, but it is at a low level throughout the year. It's only where the, uh, where the changes in the seasons are more extreme and the changes in the weather are more extreme that we have these seasonal uh, flu outbreaks and these winter viruses. And corona is a winter virus. Um, about 15 to 20% of the common coughs and colds that we all have are due to a coronavirus, not, of course, to COVID-19, but to coronaviruses in general. So our hope, I think, is that this will act as a winter virus does and will, uh, will um, be less transmissible in the warm weather, the warm weather, the more humid weather. Um, but as I said, what we have to wait and see is what happens when uh, summer ends and we go back to fall and winter next, uh, next season. And do you therefore expect um, that, like, people in Florida or people in India or people in Indonesia to have a much less transmission and be less problematic than it will be for the temperate climate populations? I think, uh, in general, that would be correct. Um, of course, there are lots of other factors at play here. So, for example, the, um, the density of the population that we've heard mentioned earlier this afternoon is terribly important. Uh, and if you have a, a lot of people in a small area with a relatively uh, you know, it, 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 with a climate that's relatively uh, poor for transmitting the disease, you can still get transmission simply because you have a lot of people squeezed in to a relatively small area. There was a paper that I believe came out of MIT in the last week or two that suggested that there is indeed uh, a uh, less of a problem in warmer climates. I think the data is still evolving. Um, I think we're still going to have to do all kinds of comparisons 
with um, with the very important measure, which is, of course, per 100,000 people. Unfortunately, the Johns Hopkins data, uh, which is on that uh, uh, on the screens of so many of us that we see, that does not tell us um, the disease uh, per 100,000 people. And that's very, very important uh, to figure out. So this data will have to trickle in. Uh, but I certainly hope that, um, that the warmer temperatures uh, may help to see less disease. And of course, in, in places where, a lot of, where there's a very, very high human density population, uh, in places in India and, 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 and perhaps some, some other countries in South America, this may actually not be enough to prevent the spread of the disease simply because of the numbers of people living in close proximity. Alan was talking about earlier that the treatments aren't doing much good. Um, what do you... Um, what are your prognosis for some of the antivirals? Um, will they work? Um, how will we be able to tell? How are we going to be able to real-time coordinate uh, our treatment response? Well, the good news is that there are a number of well-constructed clinical trials uh, that are currently uh, up and running to try and answer some of these questions. And these trials include trials of hydroxychloroquine, um, the medicine that uh, many people have been hearing about, um, we do not yet know whether this medicine is a, uh, is, is, has any effect at all. I mean, the early data, I have the, the original paper that was, or one of the original papers uh, that was published uh, by, by a French group. Um, and if you look at the data, I mean, it's, it's uh, astonishing that anybody would recommend a drug on the basis of, of, uh, of, of the data that they had. And this isn't to criticize the French group. They were doing the best that they can, but this was an open label, meaning that there was no, uh, nobody got placebo. Um, in the study group, six of the patients uh, were excluded from the analysis, leaving only around 20 or so to be analyzed. Um, whereas in the control group, all 16 patients were there. And incidentally, some of the patients who were excluded from an analysis in the intervention group uh, included a patient who died. Now, you know, when when that sort of um, data is excluded, you are going to come up with results that may not be replicable elsewhere. So the good news is that there are a lot of studies that are being done. Um, at the NIH, I'm involved in a couple of trials, or at least trying to get some trials off the, um, up and running of existing medications that are well unknown and well understood. Uh, and so at least in terms of their side effects, uh, we understand these medications. It's a whole different story for brand new medications. But if we're repurposing existing medications, it's somewhat easier, at least in terms of our understanding of the drugs, um, to get these um, uh, in, into, into clinical trials. Uh, and I'm hopeful that they will, um, you know, I'm hopeful that they will uh, yield some medicines that are effective. But of course, um, we all hope what we need is, of course, uh, the scientific data to, to really guide us here on what are the appropriate therapies. Uh, I think Gary, Gary, uh, Saul, Morris, are you on the line? Saul? Can you hear me now? Yes. Can you, you can hear me. I can't hear you, Saul. Okay. Saul, welcome. Um, uh, Saul is a professor you. of Slavic literature at Northwestern. Saul, you wanted to comment a little bit on how literature can help us in this crisis. Well, yeah, I'm also a Russian specialist, so I just wanted to begin with one reflection from that perspective. Uh, you know, I, I think about what it looks like our situation looks like when viewed, let's say, imagined by, by Putin. And one of the things that it would be quite striking is that our political tearing at each other's throats doesn't seem to be stopping. 
the way, let's say, it did even after you know 9/11, or obviously during World War II. And if you imagine, uh, I, I can just imagine him thinking, this is a relatively minor pandemic. What if we gave him a real shock? Would the country fall apart? I think that you know we are being watched, and the way we behave, people who are not friendly to us um, are certainly taking note of um, in our behavior that we seem to regard each other as the main enemy here. Um, when I was thinking of, of a literary works to think about, um, the first one I thought of actually was uh, something I couldn't ask you to read. It's too long. Uh, Dickens' novel, Bleak House, because there's a section there where there's a slum where there's smallpox and other diseases, but the wealthy people, I guess say the one percenters or more, are completely ignored because they don't go near there and they don't get the disease and it's nothing to do with them. And then the heroine catches it, comes close to dying, is marred by smallpox for life, loses her, her fiancé. And Dickens is giving you an allegory here that you can't really separate yourself off from the unfortunate, you know, um, you know uh, the you know, inequality that Chris uh, Arnaid was talking about. I mean, we have that not only here, but the disease will come from abroad, too, if, you know, where, where people are poorer. Um, you can't really separate. It's a, it's a, um, a moral problem that, that um, he's talking about there. Uh, the story I particularly asked you to read was a, a Chekhov story, and to give you the feeling, actually, of part of the psychological effect of illness that, you know, you might not think of. You know, um, Stalin famously said that, you know, one death is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic. And, you know, when news reporting, the big picture tends to focus on, well, the big picture. But what is it like for an individual um, who suffers? And that's what, you know, literature gives you. It gets, you know, from within. And it hardly matters what the disease is. If it's a plague, I guess that you could look at, you know, stories about people being bombarded in battle where they know they could die any moment and see other people dying. But what, what Chekhov has done here is give you a person who at first doesn't realize that he's ill, and the psychology of the illness merges with his own sense of loneliness. Uh, he's lived a life where he thinks, you know, Chekhov says, the thought that he had he thought that he had attained everything a man in his position could. He had faith, and yet everything was not clear. Something was lacking still. He still felt he had missed what was most important. He doesn't even know what it is. And this feeling that he discovers through the illness also makes the illness much worse. And then, you know, there's the heart-rending loneliness that he feels. Even his own mother, you know, won't talk to him uh, as a human being. She's too much in awe of him, which multiplies his loneliness all the more. Um, and that sense, it's not just the physical suffering that one feels. It's the sense of, you know, being utterly cut off from others. You know, you mentioned the... Um, the last person you speak of is the person who gives you the, the ventilator tube. What must that feel like um, internally to make that the end of the last thing you feel like? And, and you know it, presumably. And, you know, in, in his case, 
uh, you know, he dies very suddenly, and only the way Chekhov does it, only when he can no longer hear does his mother start, you know, break down and crying and speak to him the way she did when, when he was a little boy. Uh, that niece of his confides that they're in desperate need of money. Can he help? And he, of course he can and he will. Only he dies a few hours later and can't. There's a sense of the missed opportunity that when you die very suddenly, um, you know, when, when you think it could happen very quickly and you've been thinking of your life as well, you have time to make up your will, you have time to help others, but then you realize that, that you miss the opportunity. It's just an internal feeling of what a disease can do that, um, that you go to great literature for. So, you know, what this, this, um, there's many books or novels on plagues and quarantines. Um, you know, Catherine Ann Porter had a short novel, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, and it, what, what I think is interesting about it is it's the um, fever and the confusedness of the sickness uh, combining with the loss of, of, of his lover. Um, Camus, the plague, focuses on the, on the nature of the quarantine itself and how it affects the general population, sort of like the way that you know, Anne Frank's novel, uh, Anne Frank's yes. nonfiction, where she describes living in that attic in a, in a quarantine-like mm-hmm. environment. Um, how can us... How can we, as a as a as a people, you know, use literature to better understand our lives, better understand this pandemic, and get through this? You know, what should we be doing in terms of engaging with great literature? Well, I mean, the thing that you know, great fiction will do is it lets you experience the world from another person's point of view from within. You know, in life you can't do that. You can only infer what people are feeling from external signs, um, but you know, Chekhov, the great novelist, allow you actually to trace the sequence of thoughts and feelings bit by bit. So if you, you know, read literature about people who are ill or dying, um, you understand that inscape. And I imagine that, you know, uh, that would give you the sort of insight that would help, you know, certain parts of treatment of both the, uh, the sick person and the sick person's family, too, if you, you imagine, you know, their perspective. That's you know, you're not going to get that from a sociological study, the actual, what it actually feels like. Now, I wonder that what a reader of The Bishop, the short story, would have been like a, a century ago. When I went to Wikipedia and looked up ty- mm-hmm. um, the typhus, the uh, disease that he ended up mm-hmm. dying yeah. from, typhoid, um, it lists out all the symptoms, and it's sure enough that the short, the short story progresses exactly by the symptoms that has the disease, but we, as a modern people, don't know it. Would the reader of the time been aware of, you know, the knowledge of what was going on in this short story where we, as a modern reader, would have missed it? Just like, I just don't like think so. <clears throat> Remember that, excuse me, Chekhov was a physician. So, I mean, he, was, he would have treated people like this. He would know what is going on. He's putting the reader in the same perspective as the hero. He's narrating it, you know, from the hero's perspective. So, it's unlikely that any reader would have known more uh, <clears throat> than he does, and he's beginning to suspect that he's ill but doesn't know how at some point. And, you know, uh, so that would have been a very similar sequence for the readers as well. Um, uh, paradoxically, paradoxically, I think the, 
the reader finds the, the bishop sort of an unsympathetic character. Um, was that intentional? You wrote that, but I was wondering why you thought that. I, I didn't find him unsympathetic at all. Um, why did you find him that way? That struck me that you wrote that. Um, um, well, you know, I guess because of his strange relationship with his mother, uh, his strange relationship with his colleagues, his strange relationship with uh, the collective group in the church, um, he wasn't as outgoing and caring and, and as, as I would have expected. He sort of reminded me of uh, Ivan Ilyich a little bit, you know, another example mm. of a character who you also lacked sympathy for in the process of dying. Yeah, but, but you know, his relation with his mother is because <clears throat> he's been abroad for nine years, and his mother can no longer relate to him in any other way. He wants her to. He can't stand the fact that she talks in ordinary ways to some, you know, stray monk, but, you know, keeps wanting to stand up in his presence because he's a bishop. I mean, he can't, doesn't know... This is the thing that Chekhov likes to do. There's a wasted opportunity from the failure to empathize and failure to see it from another point of view. And this is all the more painful because it's his own, you know, its own mother. And he has no idea how to, how to overcome this. You know, he tries several points and she, she just sort of tries even avoid speaking to him because she doesn't know whether to speak to him you know, in the familiar form, you know, the two or the rue form. Um, so she tries you know, not even to speak. Um, and you know you can imagine how um, you know how heartrending he, he finds this to be. I don't know. I, I didn't find him unsympathetic. I found him um, uh, lonely, um, cut off, uh, not knowing how to handle um, you know what he faces in the world, sustained only by his you know by his faith, but. Um, when he sees other people, you know, he, he wonders at the petitioners who come and they ask for nothing but something incredibly petty each time. And he doesn't know how to handle that because he's too kindly to, to tell them that. But he's distressed by it and doesn't know how to handle that either. Um, and that is part of what you get, you know, when you deal with, um, uh, with ill people. You think they're going to fulfill the role of the, you know, that an ill person ought to, looking at their whole life at the end. But, you know, you have to be sympathetic with them when they don't fit your model of what the, um, you know, what they're supposed to be feeling at such a moment. Um, it's easy just to, you know, distance yourself and condemn, but the real effort is to overcome and empathize with people who are not capable even of much empathy themselves. You know, that, that's, um, you know, and that's what as a bishop, of course, he's supposed to do and is not very good at. Um, so I'll thank you. I'm going to now open up to all the speakers that are on the line to ask questions of each other. I'm going to start. Let me ask a different question to uh, to Charlie Schwartz. Charlie, um, you heard some of Jeremy's comments about treatment and about the process. Do you, how do you think hospitals will be able to continue to work in this environment over you know the next few months? Will they have the stamina and the ability to contribute and add value? Oh, I think that's a great question, and that's going to depending on your region and in terms of the COVID population. It is going to be very difficult to, say, operate on you know an elective patient who needs a triple bypass and have them in the hospital with a large number of COVID positive patients. It's it's going to be a real challenge, and I think patients are going to stay away for a long time. I I think that. 
know, take elective orthopedic surgery if someone needs a knee scope or a, a knee replacement. I mean, these, these patients are not coming to the hospital for a very long time. And those people often have compromised immune systems, and they, they may die without care. So are we going to have more deaths from these other diseases as well? Well, I, get the uh, I, I, I agree, and we've, we've, we have statewide calls with all cardiac surgeons in, in the state of Michigan, and we're, it, it's a real concern. I think that there will be mortalities on our list of patients that are delayed. There's just there's no way around it. And how will the hospitals hold up? How will the, the medical staff hold up? And you often hear that these hospitals are completely overrun. Is that true? Some are, some aren't. Um, certainly some are, and they're overextended, and they have a large population of, of COVID-positive healthcare workers, including nurses, and it's going to be difficult for them to get back to normal. There's no doubt about it. And for Jeremy. It is it, it's Go difficult to send patients from one hospital system to another. You know, people talk about that, but in reality, that's, that's a challenge. It's Alan Gortzman. Just a quick question um, with respect to how this is going to affect hospitals. What we're seeing is that we're going from um, positive pressure rooms to negative pressure rooms as we try to convert to this high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, uh, which is now aerosolizing and making the COVID virus, instead of a droplet, it becomes uh, more of an airborne and much more contagious. Is that something that you're anticipating, like we're doing in New York and New Jersey? Well, I think that there, there's new data to show that these patients do not need to be in negative pressure rooms. So as long as they're in an ICU room and the door is closed, um, that's really, I think, the new recommendation. It, but in the event that you did have to change over um, either your patient rooms or your ICU rooms, et cetera, would you, um, is that something that's feasible for you? I mean, how, how difficult is that from an engineering perspective? Well, our, no, I think that's going to be very difficult for, for plenty of hospitals that have, don't have the resources in terms of negative pressure rooms. There's, there's no doubt about it. It would be a real challenge moving these patients around the hospital. Thank you. You know, they have like, um, the, like the Javits Center, has, um, I mean, that is not a negative pressure room. That is a wide-scale, um, I don't know, dormitory. Is, is, that, is, is that doing more harm than good for patients? Or will it? Alan and Charlie? That's, that's a very good question. We'll, we'll have to see. And so originally that, that hospital was supposed to be for non-COVID patients. And I see. And then they, they changed, and the federal government allowed COVID-positive patients to be there. So it, it's supposed to be for patients that have recovered, and um, obviously that they don't have to be in an inpatient setting um, to sort of offload resources from a hospital. It's, 
it's going to be interesting. I, I agree in terms of what type of patients are actually sent there and in terms of the level of acuity. I, I'm sorry, Jeremy, the question I missed. Which, which hospital? I was referring to the Javits Center. Oh, okay. Thank it's you. It's not really a hospital. It's a makeshift hospital. You know, in the 30s on uh, like 11th Avenue, the convention center? Yes. It's Jeremy Brown, you uh, mentioned in your book that the, um, the, the Army in 1918 had these wards where um, all the sick patients would be put together, uh, and that had a, a very catastrophic result for the patients as well as the staff. Um, is that a, a good proxy for what we may experience here, making hospitals more, well, more unsafe is. than being at home? Yeah, it certainly is in terms of the visual. I mean, I was actually sort of taken aback when I saw those uh, pictures of uh, setting up these large wards in um, some of these conference centers across the country. And, uh, you know, the front cover of my book, of the hard copy of my book, has this uh, iconic picture of what looks like an enormous gymnasium that is uh, has rows of these beds separated just by an arm's length. One person could lean out. Uh, of his bed and touch the arm of the person uh, next to him. And so um, I, I think that the visual is, is incredibly jarring. Um, now, of course, we understand infection control much better now than we did then. Uh, so it's not clear to me how we will manage the, um, uh, how we will manage this in those circumstances. And um, I just want to echo what um, was previously said. Um, what we're seeing across the country and certainly from my talking to colleagues in emergency departments, uh, both locally and across the country, is that there is a very wide variation um, that hospitals in, in areas, especially we've heard New York, are, um, are, are, are working in unimaginably difficult conditions. Uh, other places, certainly near where I am in Baltimore, um, at least as, as we speak today, are essentially quiet there. Um, ER volumes are, are um, way down and they obviously are not doing elective surgeries. So the hospital is at most half full and perhaps much less than that. Uh, I was speaking to a colleague who has a very senior position in one of the local hospitals in administration. And he said to me, Jeremy, he said, where have all the patients with CHF gone with, with congestive heart failure? It's as if, <laughs> it's as if these uh, background conditions seem to have taken a, uh, a holiday in light of uh, what else is going on. People get sick all the time. Uh, and so there is a, a background need for emergency departments. And yet what we certainly have seen in, in, in some areas, and again, this is not true and typical of the, of the, of the places in, in New York uh, where it's a whole different story. What we've certainly seen uh, near where I am in, uh, in Maryland, uh, at least so far, is that there has been a uh, – it's been quiet in the hospitals overall. Uh, but, of course, the cases are starting to pick up. And if you were going to ask, you know, if you're going to have a discussion in a week or two, uh, the situation may be very, very different. And you, in, in your book, you mention um, that treatments may not be very effective, um, but fluids are very important. Um, how can we maintain our fluids? How can... When, do, when should we make the decision when we're sick of when to go to the hospital if, in fact, the hospital is not a great place to be? Well, I think, you know, to tackle the second part first, um, the hospital is not a great place to be for many people. Um, we know this, generally speaking, right? That's why we are so keen 
to get patients out of the hospital and home as quickly as possible. Uh, because hospitals are, are, are places where all kinds of germs lurk and despite the very best efforts to clean them, that's just the reality. So hospitals are not great places to be if you are sick and certainly if you have underlying diseases, chronic lung disease, heart disease, asthma, immune deficiency, those kind of things that put you at increased risk. In terms of when, to, um, when you need to go and get medical help, look, I think here the question is, in under normal circumstances, if I felt this way, would I call my doctor? Would I get in the hospital? Would I get in the car or call an ambulance? I think if the answer is if under normal circumstances I would do that, then that's certainly a sign that you need to get checked out. But if you're somebody, um, and I'm going to speak here, this is purely, uh, you know, so my personal view on things. So this is not the uh, position uh, that the NIH might take or the CDC, but. From my experience, if you are an otherwise healthy person who is coming down with symptoms uh, and you're able to uh, sort of manage through them, and we know that a lot of people um, have very mild symptoms of this disease as well, uh, then there is no need to stand in a long line uh, to get tested. Uh, that certainly does add an important element, which is the epidemiology. Every person who gets tested adds uh, a more of an epidemiological picture as to what's going on. But on a personal level, on an individual level, um, it's probably best to ride that out just as you would ride out an influenza, um, you know, during a normal influenza season. Now, of course, if you start to feel uh, the breathing is difficult, uh, that something is, is, is really, you know, you're not getting better with each day, but you're getting worse, um, uh, that's certainly something that needs to get checked out and the hospital is standing by to, to help you out in that situation. But um, just um, to... Um, figure out whether the cough and cold symptoms and the sore throat and the funny feeling that you've had uh, with your breathing, but it's not really too bad. Um, whether you, if you really want to get up and, and um, go and get tested for COVID, I think I would really think very hard about that, about, about what that means in terms of you going out and, and exposing yourself to others' infections, exposing your infections to others. And of course, the increased strain on the already busy emergency departments. Jeremy, we also heard, um, in a previous call, Myron Scholes emphasized the importance of doing a randomized study. Um, therefore, we could determine what percent of the population were asymptomatic and get a more accurate death rate evaluation versus the only the sick people get tested. Um, how do you think about, from a public health perspective, doing a randomized study? And then you could also do it over time and see what percentage of the population it's growing to. Um, how important do you think it is? If we find out, for example, that there's 15 times as many asymptomatic people, then we know that the death rate, instead of being 3%, might be 45 basis points, maybe consistent with other flus. What do you, that's how do you exactly think about doing that yeah, public health like study? Yeah. It's not, really a, it's not really a randomized study. It's a randomized sampling. If you want to sample people yeah. um, in order to figure out what is the, um, what is the, what is sort of the underlying rate. Look, that's an extremely important study to do for all kinds of reasons, not only to tell us whether the death rate was 3% or 0.3%, uh, which is, of course, important to know, uh, but it's important in terms of spread. It's important in terms of community um, herd immunity. If it turns out that, for example, 85% or 90% of the population of the U.S. Uh, have, have, have COVID antibodies in their bloodstream, that's a very different uh, prognosis. Uh, from only 20% because we will get a certain degree of herd immunity. So doing a random sampling of the population is a very important uh, next step. I don't think that we're ready to, that, to do that yet. Right now, 
hospitals are struggling to sample the patients uh, who are turning up with symptoms. Um, and the suggestion that we are now going to sample patients uh, who both who have symptoms and, and those who don't in order to get an epidemiological fuller picture, um, I just don't think we have the infrastructure to do that. But it is extremely important, and it's certainly a study that I would like to see happen. Uh, but of course, when there has been uh, several weeks where we haven't even had test kits available, uh, that's really a luxury um, that um, we probably can't afford right now as we as we prioritize the test kits in order to make these important diagnoses. But it's something we will need to do in the future, certainly. Jeremy, how would you respond to Jeff Shell's point about um, doing testing as people enter a theme park? Um, as you know, we have type 1 and type 2 errors, and you mentioned in the book that a very good test might have only a 75% accuracy, in which case tons of people are coming into the park who are, who are asymptomatic yeah. or potentially sick. Um, and we have that problem with the theme park. We have the problem with going to an office, you know, going to the office, even going to the grocery store, just general movement in the population. Is this testing a, a false um, sense of security? Um, I think it is. Look, um, I understand the sentiment, but I don't know that if people heard there was, uh, in order to get into a theme park, you had to be tested. At least in my mind, that would, that, that would, that would raise the question of, is it really important? Is this theme park experience important enough for me to possibly expose myself to this virus? Um, I think that's at least the way I would consider that question. Uh, but what you point to are the natural errors of tests. And I actually had felt like writing a, a piece about this, but um, uh, got involved with some other work. But look, um, even the very, very good tests and um, the uh, tests that we have for COVID are PCR tests. So they're uh, they're, they are um, very, very sensitive and specific, but they're not 100% sensitive and specific. And when you test hundreds of thousands of people, you have false uh, positives and you have false negatives. So any test will give you a false positive in a certain number of people. If you do a test uh, many millions of times, uh, those false positives can be very uh, turn out to be many hundreds of thousands of people. And Similarly, false negatives, you can tell a patient they don't have the disease when in fact they do simply because the test is not um, 100% good at what it does. And that's a very important feature. That's true of all tests that we do, pregnancy tests, HIV tests, uh, influenza, rapid, rapid influenza tests. All of these are subject to the fact that they're not 100% perfect. So when you're testing millions of people, as we had just suggested, you might want to do in a random sampling, you also have to realize that you are going to have some false positives and some false negatives. It starts to get a bit more complicated um, when you take into account the prevalence of the disease, uh, because obviously if there's a lot of disease out there and you get a positive, that positive is more likely to be true. If there's almost no disease out there and you get a positive, you have to sort of say, hmm, is it really, is it really positive or is my test in error? So the background prevalence of the disease um, is important. Doctors understand this all the time when they talk about the predictive value of a test. Um, in other words, now that I have a test result, what is the likelihood of my patient actually having the thing that I'm looking for or actually being free of disease? Uh, so these are things that doctors are very familiar with, uh, if, not, if not from their time on the wards and certainly the time back in uh, medical school when everybody had to learn uh, these important characteristics of tests. And as I said, when it comes to sampling very, very large segments of the population, millions of people, these errors of tests will have to be taken into account because what you will end up happening is you will have many hundreds and possibly thousands of people 
who are told that they're testing negative when in fact they actually have the disease and it's just a problem uh, with the test not being perfect. You know, Joe Moker was mentioning that technology uh, is doing a great job of solving our problems for both this short-term virus and long-term versus viruses going forward. Jeremy, could you comment on, on Joel's hope in technology really making a difference? I have, um, I have an ambivalent uh, relationship with big technology. I remember when Deep Blue won, uh, was it Deep Blue who won Jeopardy? Um, and uh, IBM, there was talk about this is going to be the next greatest thing in, in, in healthcare that the doctor's going to put the symptoms in and, and the computer's going to tell you what's wrong with the patient. And I, again, another, another editorial that I didn't write was something that we don't need. We don't need the supercomputers. We need more, we need more um, primary healthcare physicians. Uh, it's, it's the contact with the patient uh, and the ability to speak to a patient and get patients to see their physicians that we really lack in many places in this uh, amazingly uh, materialistic uh, and you know uh, country of ours, um, many patients don't have insurance or the ability to get to their doctors, and so I worry that when we think about technologies as a group, they certainly offer some uh, possibilities. Uh, but I have always thought to myself that more important than um, the latest and greatest uh, computers here are to get more physicians uh, and nurse practitioners trained out there in the communities. That's what's really going to make a difference uh, to the vast majority of people, uh, not, not uh, some supercomputer figuring out uh, uh, you know, uh, whether or not your symptoms fit one disease or another, which, by the way, most physicians are perfectly good at. Now, there, are, there is some question of uh, designing drugs with uh, supercomputers. Um, uh, for reasons that I don't want to get into today, I'm still skeptical of that. Uh, we haven't had much success with some pro some uh, programs that looked at protein structures that were. Um, Jeremy, let me interrupt you for a second. On... Go ahead. Um, earlier, um, you mentioned that we don't have time in our efforts to do a very large random sample. Um, Myron Scholes has just emailed me and asked me the question: Why do we need such a large random sample? You know, when we try to determine political polling whether or not Trump is beating Biden or vice versa, we usually do a sample of around 1,800, 2,500 for the nation as a whole. Why couldn't we just do a sample of 1,000 and be able to determine what the asymptomatic or uh, low amount is for a population? So, for example, if we did Manhattan, 1,000 bona fide random sample, and we found out that you know 40% were asymptomatic, that would give us a lot of information. Why do, why do we need a million? Why, why not just 1,000 or two? I think you're absolutely correct. We don't need a million. Uh, we need a million to get um, better statistical uh, sampling and, and, and smaller confidence intervals to be more sure that our sampling is correct. But if we choose the populations carefully, uh, we can get a lot of information from small samples. The problem is you get very wide confidence intervals, meaning, yes, I sampled a thousand people, but were they truly uh, representative of the community from which they came? So the short answer to your question is we can get a lot of important uh, sampling uh, information if we do these small uh, samples. But as we all learned from 2016, if you sample the wrong population and make judgments based on your sampling, uh, certainly when it comes to political sampling, you will, you will not be able to call correctly the outcomes of the general election. And so we have to make sure that that sample that we take 
is truly a random and representative sample of the bigger population. And then what will happen is, of course, that your thousand people in Manhattan will not necessarily be representative of the thousand people uh, in Queens, uh, who will not be representative of the thousand people in, uh, you know, in Long Island and won't be representative of what's going on in Minneapolis. So those are the caveats. And, but these, are, of course, are well known and well described to people who do this all the time, to, epi with, uh, to epidemiologists. Uh, who understand this stuff, but you certainly could do it with a smaller sample. All right, so um, we're just about out of time, and I thought you know, very often on these calls we end on sort of a negative note. If we could go around with whoever the speakers are still on the line, if they could just say a few words of optimism so we can look at the positive side of where, as we exit the call. Uh, anybody fire, fire ahead if they're ready. One note of optimism. This is Steve Davis. Steve, I didn't hear what you said. What were you optimistic about? We are learning how to prepare better for future pandemics. Okay. Shall we have any we may be learning to be more um, empathetic with each other um, as time goes on. This is Phil Fisher. Uh, our system, our governmental systems have been through pandemic after pandemic. Well, get through this one too. Uh, so, Jeremy, I want to say back in uh, 1918, there's a picture that I've, I've referenced this in other interviews that I've given. Um, of uh, three or four nurses uh, sitting, uh, making face masks. And behind them, this is from 1918, behind these nurses who themselves have face masks on, so they cannot be identified, um, there is a sign that says, if, he, if I fail, he will die. Um, it was a reminder that the small act of uh, sewing together a face mask many uh, miles away from uh, the front lines of the, of the fight against influenza um, the, the, if you fail in those um, in, in that small act, it has tremendous ramifications. And I think uh, that idea of you know if I fail, he will die um, can be a, a message that I think all of us can live with. In other words, my small acts today can have very great ramifications. And I think we're learning from this emphasis now on social distancing uh, just how important it is uh, that each of us plays our own role in minimizing the disease, uh, so that. We will get through this. There's no question what we will what it will look like when we emerge from the other side. I think uh, we've heard today um, we're really not sure about. But um, we, I, I, for me, this idea that we are all in this together um, and that we all have our own part to play in this uh, is an important one that we all need to take away. This is Ernie Freeberg. Uh, I've been struck by uh, the sense of community, even in social isolation, in my suburban neighborhood, where I feel like I, uh, you know from safe social distance, I'm getting to know my neighbors uh, much better. And I think that sense of uh, empathy, uh, I'm feeling that all over the place. I, I was very struck by Chris's conversation about uh, the, the, the gap between the rich and the poor. And I, I, I hope that uh, that empathy, uh, this, this provides a moment for us to be thinking about uh, more equitable adjustments on the other end of this side. Um, here's Max. I, I, I don't find it hard at all to be optimistic in this. Like, we just have to look at those places that actually managed to respond well and that have responded well over the last weeks. And there are not just a few places like that. There's Korea that responded well. There's El Salvador that closed down very early and contained the um, spread until now. There's Norway that ramps up testing much more rapidly. Like, we are pessimistic if we look at Italy. We are pessimistic if we look at the data points from the U.S., but there's a lot to learn from those countries that responded well, and there's lots of optimism because we know that with current technology, we can handle this. And as Joel Mock here was emphasizing, 
we will develop the vaccine as a question of time, and then we will end this pandemic. All right. With it's, that, I thank everyone. Just Go ahead, say, please donate. Please donate blood. It's an easy way to make a material difference. Thank you, Alan. All right, that wraps it up. Thank you very much. There will be a call next week at the same time. Good night.